We'll begin with a word of prayer then. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have given us a detailed understanding of how it is that we can approach a holy God. We thank you for all of the symbolism and all the pictures that you have given us so that we can fully understand how it is possible that we can come to you through your Son, Jesus Christ, by his mediation. He is both our, our great high priest and he's also the sacrifice for us. We thank you for these things and we ask that you would help us to understand them better. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, I'll have to uh, paint some vivid word pictures for you <laughs> as we go along here. So these first few slides will be on your, on your handout. The Hebrew Bible gives to the book of Leviticus the name Vayikra, which means, and he called. It's the first word of Leviticus 1.1. I explained to you before how with the Pentateuch, the Torah, the, the, the Jewish people named the books after the first word that appears in, in the book. So like Bereshit is in, you know, in the beginning for Genesis. Vayikra is the name for what we call the book of Leviticus. The Septuagint title, Leviticon, which means that which pertains to the Levites and serves to indicate the central theme of the book. The chief emphasis of this compendium of, of uh, priestly regulations is the holiness of Israel as a nation set apart for the service and glory of God. So let's look at our flight characteristics here. The facts, both the internal evidence, more than 30 times we read that the Lord spoke to Moses. And external evidence, early Jewish testimony, point to Moses. Authorship of Leviticus, the third book of the Torah. The book was written sometime in the 15th century B.C., probably after the completion of the tabernacle. And of course, once again, that uh, assumes, as I do, that uh, uh, an early date of the Exodus. Leviticus divides into two sections. The first focuses on establishing the law and the way to God through sacrifice. God clarified how people were designed to live and how they could atone for their sins. The second section of Paul emphasizes walking with God through sanctification, through the sanctification process by which we become holy or set apart for God's purposes. So, once again, that, that twofold uh, sectioning of, of the book, the way to God through sacrifice, that's chapters 1 through 17, and then a walk with God through sanctification, how God's people, were, once they were holy, once they were set apart, how they were to maintain that holiness. Gospel, the scarlet thread of redemption, is clearly woven into the nature and practice of the law and the tabernacle sacrifices. Beyond the veil separating the holy of holies, in the tabernacle lay the mercy seat, the golden lid of the Ark of the Covenant, upon which the blood of atonement was poured. Jesus became our mercy seat transforming what was a place of judgment into a place of mercy. Egypt was the reigning regional power and had been for more than 1,500 years. It was in the midst of polytheism, building projects, and pharaoh worship that God, through Moses, not only delivered the Hebrews from slavery, 
but also established the codes of worship for Israel. The travel tips, uh, true sacrifice is voluntary, not forced. Though the law of Moses contained a lot of mandatory sacrifices, people could offer many sacrifices out of their own free will, a grateful, heartfelt response to what God had done for them. And also the national days of feasting and sacrifice prescribed in Leviticus reminded the Jews of God's deliverance from Egypt and provision in the wilderness. Celebrate the moments in your life during which God has shown himself strong on your behalf. Um, Fortunately for you, there there won't be many maps this time. Uh, This is just a map of showing where Mount Sinai is located. According to the traditional theory that it's located in the southern tip of the Sinai Peninsula. And then there's another map which shows all the various mountains which have been identified by scholars, which they think is, is Mount Sinai. But the two, the two leading contenders are the traditional site at the southern tip of, of the Sinai Peninsula and then Jebel al-Laz located over in what is today Saudi Arabia. Okay. And then uh, you also have... Uh, Principles of Levitical Legislation. So these are the principles which we can discern from, from, the, book of, from the book of Leviticus. The first principle is maintaining holiness. And we see several uh, scriptures in Leviticus uh, telling us about that. That was first and foremost, God uh, told Israel that, that they should be holy because he is holy. In order to communicate with him in order to have him in their presence. They need to maintain holiness. The second principle is maintain access to God by substitutionary atonement. And of course we'll see lots of that when we, when we get to the sacrifices. The next principle is they must worship according to God's ordination. We can't just worship God in any old way that we please. They couldn't then and we can't now. The next principle is that God's people must remain sexually pure. The next principle is that they must abstain from commingling the holy and the profane. And there were several different picture lessons that God gave the Israelites to illustrate that principle. And last, the religious year is to be dominated by the number seven. And we certainly see that in God's holy day and Sabbath plan. The principle of substitutionary atonement is key to the whole sacrificial system of ancient Israel. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And another scripture that isn't on your handout is from Hebrews 9, chapter 22, where we see the same principle. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's Hebrews 9.22. The basic principle underlying all blood sacrifices was atonement by the substitution of an innocent life for the guilty. In token of the substitution, the offerer laid his hand on the victim's head thus identifying himself with it as his representative. 
So the Hebrew word for lay, it doesn't mean just lay. I mean, it means to apply some pressure. So you actually press down on the head of the animal. So it means it means that you apply some pressure rather than merely touch. So he was identifying himself with this animal, this innocent animal that would be his substitute. Now, after the animal is brought to the place of worship, the worshiper, not the priest, kills the animal by slitting his throat. That, that's something that um, a lot of people don't understand. They think that the, that the priest slayed the animal. But actually, the offerer, the one who brought the sacrifice to the temple, to the temple or tabernacle, he was the one who had to, to, had to slay the animal. Now, after he slit the animal's throat, then the, then the priest would take the blood of the animal and apply it to the altar, and, and he would do the heavy lifting and, and carry on with the sacrificial, sacrificial system. But it was the responsibility of the, of the offerer, the worshiper, to actually kill the animal. So he was definitely identifying himself with the animal. The, the next thing that I wanted to mention while we're talking about, still talking about blood, is the prohibition against eating blood. Um, this, this prohibition of eating blood uh, is more significant than you might think. Um, we see it stated in Leviticus. It says, It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations and all your dwelling places. There you eat neither fat nor blood. Moreover, you shall eat no blood, whatever whether of fowl or of animal, in any of your dwelling places. And that, that principle of not eating blood uh, w- was given first in Genesis, long before the Mosaic Law was established. In Genesis 9.4 it says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. So that's Genesis 4. And then, in the New Testament, when James, in the Apostolic Council in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, when he gave instructions to non-Jewish Christians, he said, uh, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. And then uh, that's uh, Acts 15 verse 20, and then later on in verse 29, he says that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled from, and from sexual immorality. So there, there was this understanding that the blood was very important in salvation history. Now, I wish you could see this. <laughs> this is just a an artist illustration of, of what it may have looked like as the priests were going about their duties, uh, burning the sacrifice on the altar. And then in the background, there are some, uh, I don't know what you would call them, frames or um, uh, racks f- uh, where the slaughtered animal is hung up. And that was important because with some of the sacrifices, they were portioned out. I mean, a certain portion was given to the priest, a certain portion was given to the, to the worshiper, and then a certain portion was offered to God. So that was, that was the, the case with, some of the, with the, uh, some of the sacrifices. Because we don't do sacrifices today, 
and actually nobody does, the Jews don't do them either, because in order to do sacrifices, they would need a standing temple and a functioning priesthood, None of, neither of which they've had since AD 70. So because we don't do sacrifices, we have this tendency to think, well, a sacrifice is a sacrifice. <laughs> you slip the throat, you put them on the altar, you burn them up. What, what can be so complicated about that? Well, actually, there, there was far more to it than that. And there were different kinds of sacrifices, different types of sacrifices. I guess I don't know which, which slides are on your... Yeah, okay, the five sacrifices, anyway, are on your, on your handout. So there's the burnt offering, the grain offering, the, the peace offering. And you'll see that I've, I've given several different names for these because there are several different ways that different scholars translate these words. So you might call it the peace offering or the fellowship offering or the well-being offering. And there's the sin or purification offering. And finally, the trespass, guilt, or reparation offering. Now, the gift that was offered with these various different kinds of sacrifices, you'll see that for the burnt offering, we have an ox or a sheep or a goat or a dove. And that depended upon the, the economic status of the offerer. So if you were wealthy, you gave an ox. If you were a little less wealthy, a sheep, less still, a goat. And if you were very poor, you gave a dove. And if you were very, very poor, you gave a crane offering. The, the grain offering usually was an offering that accompanied other offerings, that was given along, along with other offerings. Uh, the grain offering is simply flour and oil and incense. And these uh, items were mixed together and, and offered to God. And what was le- all of the incense was put with the offering to God, but what was left over of the flour and oil was given to the priest. Next, the, the peace offering... or the fellowship offering, the well-being offering. So with the, with the peace offering, the, the sacrificial animal could either be either male or female. With the burnt offering, they were always male. With the uh, sin offering, sin or purification offering, um, we, you see that the animal can be either a bull or a he-goat, or a she-goat. And that depends upon who is doing the offering. So, if it was uh, the, the, a ruler, he gave a bull. No, excuse me. A, the priest or the congregation gave the bull. It was, a, it was an offering for the priest or the congregation. A bull was given. If it was a ruler, he gave the he-goat, and the commoner would give a she-goat. And then for the trespass or guilt offering... A reparation offering. That reparation, that word reparation is important. Uh, just a ram was given. Now this next slide uh, you don't have on your on your handout. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I stand corrected. You do have it on this one on your handout uh, about the different portions of the sacrifices. I mentioned those those racks or or frames where the, where the animals were hung up. So with a burnt offering, sometimes called a whole burnt offering, the entire animal was burned up. It was a, the entire animal was an offering to God. With the exception of the skin, the skin of the animal, the skin was given to the priest. 
but otherwise the entire animal is burned up. Uh, with a peace offering, the uh, fatty portions, uh, the fat that was on the internal organs that was given to God, and either a breast or right leg, right foreleg was given to the priest. So the distinction there is that the breast was given as a heave offering, or excuse me, the, the breast was given as a wave offering to the high priest, and the right foreleg was given as a heave offering to the officiating priest, the one who was doing the sacrifice. And then this sacrifice is different from all of the rest. The remainder of the sacrifice was actually eaten by the worshiper and his family and friends. So it, it, it was kind of like a holy barbecue. I mean, he, he, he and, his, um, and his family and his friends uh, were able to eat the remainder of the offering. So let's, let's take a look at each of these sacrifices now. The burnt offering, called in Hebrew the Olah, ascending, that which goes up, is derived from the fact that the fragrant aroma of the sacrifice rises up to God, rises up to heaven in the form of smoke. Uh, this, this becomes very important with these various sacrifices. This particular sacrifice was a voluntary act of worship. Atonement for unintentional sin in general. Expression of, it was an expression of devotion was, uh, and commitment and complete surrender to God. The animal was to be unblemished. This prevented anyone from bringing a deformed animal and going through the form of the sacrifice without any real price, without any real cost. The peace offering, the Hebrew term for this sacrifice, shalomim, comes from the word that means peace. You're familiar with shalom. That's why it's called a peace offering. This was a voluntary act of worship also. It symbolizes fellowship with God. and included a communal covenant meal, which I mentioned. And there were actually three different variations of, of, these, um, of this peace offering. One was a thank offering, which signifies thankfulness for a specific blessing. Two, a, a vow offering, offers a ritual expression of a vow. And then a free will offering, which symbolizes general thankfulness. The sin offering, chatat, obviously had to do with the removal of sin. But it was also a purification offering. In, for, for modern Christians, we have a tendency to equate uncleanness with sin. And it is certainly true that sin does make you unclean. But many of the things that made you ceremonial, ceremonially unclean didn't have anything to do with sin. For example, when you took, undertook a Nazarite vow, at the end of your period of, of your Nazarite vow, you would offer a sacrifice. Well, you didn't sin, you just, that was part of, the, part of the procedure. And also, uh, another example is a woman giving birth. Uh, she would be unclean when she had given birth. Now, there's nothing sinful about giving birth. So, so I, we need to understand that distinction, that not all uncleanness is due to sin. Let's see. Uh, so, so it was all, we call it a sin offering, but it was also a purification offering in the case of, of people who hadn't sinned, who just needed to be purified of their uncleanness. 
Now, this is the first sacrifice, which is mandatory. If you, if you had sinned or if you'd become unclean, you, you had to do the sacrifice. It was made by one who had sinned unintentionally or who was unclean in order to attain purification. Confession of and repentance for specific sin, a specific sin, brought about forgiveness of sin. This, this offering brought about the forgiveness of that specific sin, or it brought about cleansing from defilement. The trespass offering, it's similar to the sin offering. It too was mandatory. It was made by a person who had either deprived another of his rights or had desecrated something holy. So he'd either offended God by desecrating something holy or he had uh, somehow uh, in his relations with his neighbor, he had committed a sin against them. It was also a sacrifice of repentance for sins but it was a special kind of sin offering. It additionally underscored the need for restitution. That's why it's sometimes called the reparation offering. A 20% fine was paid. So that when, you're, when, you're, when you've sinned against other people, you not only have to, to make it right, but you're fined an additional 20%. Also, it brought about cleansing from defilement. And this is the type of offering that was made by lepers for purification. I think it will be helpful to understand these different sacrifices if we, if we compare them and contrast them in, in different ways. So you notice that the first three offerings, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, they were voluntary. You brought those of your own accord. The last two, the sin offering and the guilt offering, the guilt offering or trespass offering, those two were mandatory. If you had sinned or if you were unclean, you had to bring those sacrifices. The first three were for acceptance by God, offerings of dedication to him. So they were Godward. The last two were as atonement to him, offerings of expiation. So they were manward. There are three aspects to this whole, this whole process of presenting an offering to God. The reason for the offering, man is sinful. The rule of the offering, the sacrifice is substitutional for man's sin. The ritual of the offering, the process was a ceremonial illustration of how God is to be approached through Christ. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I was thinking about as I came over here tonight was I need to thank you people for helping me to better understand these things because I want to explain things so that, that they are understandable so they will be helpful to you but in order to do that I need to, to study these things and make, get a clearer understanding of, of these things myself so, so thank you <laughs> One of the things that, that I have long pondered about and wondered about is this idea of intentional sin. So you will notice that as we, go, as we went through the sacrifices, 
it only talks about unintentional sins. It doesn't, it doesn't really say anything about intentional sins. So many scholars have concluded over the years, both, both Jewish and Christian, that the Old Testament sacrificial system makes provision only for unintentional sins, not for those committed deliberately, not for intentional sins. That's what they concluded. In fact, <laughs> in fact, uh, I, I know that, that some Jewish scholars have even gone so far as to say that David's sin with Bathsheba was an unintentional sin. They say that, uh, that he, he, didn't, he really didn't know at the time that she was married. Well, <laughs> even if that is true, he certainly did know what he was doing when he plotted the death of Uriah. So... Uh. But anyway, I, I don't think that that is quite accurate to say that it was only for unintentional sins, that it didn't cover intentional sins, the sacrificial system. An examination of the particular situations covered in, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, and this is in that passage about the different sacrifices. So in, in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, it's talking about sins against another person. And in this list of situations that are covered, there's just there's just no way that these cannot possibly be can possibly be done inadvertently. These sins cannot be inadvertent. For example, refusing to return something to an acquaintance that an acquaintance has placed in someone's safekeeping, or stealing from someone, or lying about finding something that was lost by another. That those things can hardly be inadvertent sins. So what, what, is, what is the answer? Well, why is it that it only talks about inadvertent sins, but it never talks about uh, uh, intentional sins? Well, I, I think that this provides us with the, with the solution, with the answer. There's a passage in Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. And this is, this is a parallel to what we read in in Leviticus. But I think that, that uh, this passage in Numbers gives us something very important that we can key on. Confession is essential in the case of a deliberate sin. You have to confess your sins. You have to repent of your sins. You have to acknowledge that you have sinned. Thus, the sin moves into the category of inadvertent sins and may be expiated. So, when you committed the sin, it was a deliberate sin. You meant to do it at the time. But when you repent of the sin, when you confess the sin, repent of the sin, then the, sacrifice, then the sin moves into the inadvertent category, and then it, then it may be expiated. So I think that this is how the, the sacrificial system worked. Sacrificial atonement is barred only to the unrepentant sinner. It is not the deliberate sinner who is excluded from sacrificial expiation, but the unrepentant sinner. So deliberate sins that are unrepented of, they can't be handled through through the sacrificial system. The next thing that I wanted to discuss is the ordination of priests. So once Israel had been given this sacrificial system, then obviously somebody needed to, 
to perform the sacrifices. So the next thing that is covered is the ordination of priests. God chose Aaron and his son, and his sons instead of all of the firstborn sons in every Israelite family to be priests. So Aaron and his descendants take the place of these of the firstborn of Israel, of all of the tribes of Israel. The Aaronic priesthood was established in their order by water, which is symbolic of purification, oil, which is symbolic of sanctification, and blood, which is symbolic of consecration. So water, oil, and blood were involved in, in consecrating the priests. And I think this one is on your handout. Yes. Um, one of the things that, that seems peculiar to us is, is how the, the blood of the sacrifice was applied to Aaron and his sons. The blood was applied to his right ear and to his right thumb and to the big toe on his right foot. Well, I think that those things aren't, aren't quite as mysterious as they might appear. It was applied to his right ear, meaning that he was called to hear God's voice, to his right thumb, meaning that he was called to do God's will, and to his right big toe, that, meaning that he was called to walk in God's ways. The initiation of their priestly duties was accompanied by a manifestation of the glory of God, the Shekinah glory, overwhelmed the tabernacle, and also the approval of God in the consummation of the sacrifice by fire. So the, the sacrifice was supernaturally burned up. So we see that the glory of God and the consummation by fire were present there. Now, this wonderful, glorious moment was shattered, it was saddened by the incident with Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu were the sons of Aaron, and they became sad object lessons of their presumptuous attempt because of their presumptuous attempt to perform God's work in a human way. This is uh, Leviticus 10, chapter 1. Now Nahab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, and laid incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. No one knows for certain what this strange fire or other translations are profane fire or unauthorized fire. Actually, nobody knows what it actually was. It could have been fire from the outer courtyard instead of the prescribed fire from the altar. So they were supposed to bring fire from the altar to, into the temple. Maybe that was the problem. Some scholars think Aaron's sons might have been drunk, or that they were offering a sacrifice while ritually unclean, or that they were, they were impure. With, they had impure hearts when they attempting to offer sacrifices, uh, disrespecting God before the people. Now, whatever the case, one thing became clear. The worship God accepts is the worship God prescribes. And that's just as true today as it was then. Yeah. Innovations, clever innovations in worship are not, are not welcomed by God. <laughs> we have to do it his way, not our way.
So understandably, Moses or Aaron went to Moses asking, you know, what, what has caused this? How can God allow this horrible thing to happen? In Leviticus chapter 10, verse 3, Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So then we're told that Aaron accepted that and held his peace. Now we get further into this concept of clean and unclean. And we begin with the animals that are used for food. So you have that on your handout among the land animals. The land animals had to chew the cud and have cloven hooves in order to be fit for food. The aquatic animals, the animals that lived in the water, they had to have fins and scales. With birds, it's kind of different because we're not really told which birds are clean or what the, what the characteristics of those birds are, but we are given several examples of unclean birds. And so we can discern which birds are clean based on which ones are unclean. We can examine the unclean birds and see what their characteristics are. In general, um, the birds that are unclean are like birds of prey. They're unclean birds. Uh, it also talks about the feet of the birds. So the, the birds that have three toes forward, those are clean. And the ones that, well, you have two toes forward and two toes back, those, those are, the, those are more, the more the birds of prey. And we, call, we say birds, but actually the, the Bible is thinking more in terms of flying animals of all kinds. So like it mentions the bat as being unclean. Well, the bat is not a bird, but it is a flying animal, an unclean flying animal. Uh, the, the one that I didn't include on your list is the insects. You can eat locusts and crickets and grasshoppers. So, so I tell you. So let, let's get further into this concept of uncleanness. The overwhelming number of situations or actions that engender uncleanness are perfectly normal and natural ones, just part of being human, part of the natural human experience. Things like birth of a child, ailments and infections, dying and death, sexual intimacy with one's spouse, bodily discharges. These things are simply reminders of our, of our mortality. We are subject to death and decay. Yet Israel dwelt in the presence of a holy God. So we can distinguish between the larger group of permitted impurities and prohibited impurities, those which involve sin. So that, that's the distinction that I would make when you, when you just lump all of these different things that cause uncleanness together. There's a, a larger group of permitted impurities, things that, that just happen. You don't have any choice in the matter. And then those prohibited impurities, those which involve sin. In the case of the permitted impurities, the effects are minimal. Uh, the duration often short-lived. Often we see uh, when it's describing these things that cause you to be unclean, and it says the person will be unclean until evening. So it's very, very short-lived. 
and, and bathing and or laundering one's clothes will often suffice to end this period of uncleanness. So that, that's some of those permitted uncleannesses. These permitted impurities were tolerated, but while allowed, they were not necessarily encouraged and were to be generated as infrequently as possible because any impurity threatened the holy and everything that pertained to it. So it was understood that, you, that these things would just happen to you and you would be unclean from time to time, but you certainly weren't encouraged to go after them. In Leviticus 11.45, we see the principle which guides all of this. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. One of the things that, that caused uncleanness, I mentioned before, was the birth of a child, childbirth. After the birth of a male child, the mother was to remain in seclusion for a week. After the child's circumcision, she was to remain in seclusion for another 33 days. Then she was to present an offering to the Lord and became ceremonially clean once again. Feminists who complain about the patriarchal imbalance of much of the Old Testament cite the fact that in the case of the birth of a girl, the mother's length of seclusion is doubled from one week to two weeks, and then the 33 days are doubled to 66 days, a total of 80 days. So 40 days for a male child, 80 days for a female child. And, of course, the, the feminists have a fit about that. They think it somehow is an indication of the, of the relative worth of a male child versus a female child. But this is not an affront to anything female. The doubling represents a concern to safeguard the new daughter. Where's my water? <laughs> it was here. Uh, to to uh, safeguard the, the daughter, the, the new daughter, and her potential fertility. Given the fact that quite likely... She will one day be a new mother herself. So that once again, as with things throughout the Bible, that the radical feminists accuse us of having uh, anti-woman ideas. It's not anti-woman at all. Another thing that caused a person to become unclean was leprosy. The word leprosy is a generic term that covers a number of skin diseases, most of, which, most of which would not be contagious. What we call leprosy today has a, a medical name, a medical term. It's called Hansen's disease. But as you read what the Bible is talking about when it talks about leprosy, we can see that there, it's talking about a much wider spectrum, a collection of different illnesses than, than just Hansen's disease, what we call leprosy today. That the disease can affect both clothing and buildings seems to imply a range of meanings that would cover rot and fungus and mildew. So it's not just a skin disease, it also covers these other things. 
this word of, of leprosy. There was a, a threefold ritual that the leper had to be involved with as his uh, leprosy was cleansed. There was a ceremony for the first day. The purpose of this ritual is not to cleanse the disease, but to witness to the fact that the, that the disease is already healed. So it was uh, completely symbolic and religious, not therapeutic. The priest did not function as a healer. He was simply uh, an inspector uh, who verified that the disease had been healed. He was not responsible for healing it. Then there are also a second ceremony for the seventh day and a third ceremony for the eighth day with the focus on offering the appropriate sacrifices. Now, like so many sacrifices, revisions occur in the sacrificial requirements if the leper is poor. So if he were, was poor, there is a, a downward adjustment in, in the sacrifices that he was required to bring. And you can easily see how, even if a leper wasn't poor to begin with, how he, if the disease lasted very long, he became poor because... It, he was barred from contact with other people, and so whatever trade he carried on, he couldn't do it. Well, he had leprosy. The, the next uh, thing that we find in Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 16 is the Day of Atonement. And Eric has addressed this many times about the two goats and what they represent. The, the two goats represent two aspects of, of Christ's sacrifice. First goat represents propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath for sin. And then the second goat represents expiation, the removal of sin. So those are two vitally important aspects of Christ's sacrifice that bring about our salvation and our eternal life. Leviticus chapter 18 gives us a list of sanctioned relationships. In other words, relationships that are forbidden. So, it talks about those marriages which are prohibited. So, if a man, a man is prohibited from marrying his mother, that's forbidden, He's prohibited from marrying his daughter. That's at least implicitly forbidden. And he's um, uh, forbidden from implicitly from marrying his full sister. See, it, it does explicitly forbid marrying your half-sister or your stepsister, so it's a logical extension that you couldn't marry your full sister either. He's not mar to marry his father's wife. That's forbidden. He's not to marry his half-sister, that's forbidden. He's not to marry his grandchild, that's forbidden. And he's not to marry his stepsister, that's forbidden. He's not to marry his aunt, that's forbidden. He's not to marry his daughter-in-law, that's forbidden. He's not to marry his brother's wife, that's forbidden. Uh, he's not to marry a woman and her daughter or her mother, that's forbidden. 
means not to marry a woman and her granddaughter. That's also forbidden. And he's not to marry the sister of a wife. The, the, yeah, the sister of a wife while his wife is still alive. So he's married to a wife. He, he can't marry, be married to a sister as long as his wife is still living. One of the uh, relationships that's not implicitly forbidden is, is interesting because many centuries later, a controversy arose that we read about in the, in the Dead Sea Scrolls where, the, where this came up. This passage in Leviticus 18 doesn't specifically prohibit a man from marrying his niece. So there, there was a debate about this. I mean, there was one group that said, well, it doesn't say we can't, so, that, so we can. And another group said, well, it doesn't explicitly say you can't, but that's implicitly it does. So that was the, the debate that we do find in the Dead Sea Scrolls about, about whether a man can marry his niece. Um, the next thing I wanted to give you is a list of some of the sexual offenses in the Bible and biblical law. Not all of these are from the book of Leviticus. Some are from Exodus and some are from Deuteronomy. But I wanted to give you a, a more comprehensive list. So, um, I don't believe you have these on your handout. No. So, in the first column I have the offender or offenders. In the next column I have the offense. And then in the third column I have the penalty. What would happen to them if they were, were guilty of committing that offense? So, if a man has sexual relations with a married woman, the offense is adultery and the penalty is death. If a man has sexual relations with a betrothed woman, that is also adultery, and the penalty is death. So you can see how in ancient Israel, we see this with Joseph and Mary, that once a couple was betrothed, they were as good as married. And so for another man to have sex with that woman was the same as having sex with a married woman. Now this one is interesting. A priest's daughter, the daughter of a priest. Um, she was not to be promiscuous. And the penalty for doing so was to be burned. In most cases, death is by stoning. But in this particular case, uh, she was to be put to death by burning. Um, the next one I have, the next offender is a woman, a bride, and the offense would be promiscuity. In other words, she wasn't a virgin when she got married. And the penalty for that was death. Uh, the next three are, are men. Uh, the first one is the rape of a betrothed woman. The penalty for that is death. The next one is where a man rapes a, an unbetrothed woman. Now, you might find this one somewhat puzzling because if a man raped an unbetrothed woman a woman who wasn't married and wasn't pledged to be married he had to pay her father 50 shekels 
and he was forced to marry her. Um, and another, another stipulation was, I didn't have uh, room to fit this into my columns here, but another stipulation was that he had no right of divorce. So he had to marry her and he had to stay married to her. And that might seem kind of strange to us, but I mean, how, how do you know the mind of a rapist? But I'm told that that rapists, for a rapist, it's, it's often not about sex. It's about power. So in, in effect, what they... What, what ancient Israel, through God's law, is saying to potential rapists is, if you want to rape this woman, you're going to have to marry her. And you're going to have to stay married to her. <laughs> you're going to have to provide for her. So he, he wasn't allowed to, to divorce the woman. Another aspect of this is that in the ancient world, there just wasn't much prospect for a woman who didn't have a husband. You couldn't just go out and get a job. So she needed a husband to provide for her, and not many husbands would be interested in marrying her in the event of rape. The other, the last one on my list here is a man. He's the offender. And we're talking about the seduction of an unbetrothed woman. So he entices this woman to have sex with him. So once again, uh, a bride price had to be paid to the father of this woman. And there was a forced marriage, but in this case, it was at the discretion of the father. So he could decide to have his daughter married to this man or not married to this man. This one, I think, is on your list. Yes, the memorable verse in Leviticus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. That is not something that originated in the Gospels. That's not something that came up with, with Christ. That was something that was in the book of Leviticus way back centuries ago. And that, that principle, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, is quoted nine times in the New Testament. So Jesus quoted it, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul quoted it in Romans and Galatians, and James quoted it in his book. So that's certainly a timeless principle. In Leviticus chapter 23, we read about the feasts of Leviticus. Now, notice that I said the feast of Leviticus. Because some people will call these the feasts of Israel or the Jewish feasts, but that's really not quite correct. If you read Leviticus chapter 23, over and over again, God says, these are my feasts. They're not just the feasts that the Jews dreamed up or the Israel dreamed up. And of course, we are told in the, in the prophecies uh, in the Old Testament that when the millennial kingdom is established, the entire world 
will be observing the feast of the Lord. So we have Passover, which is the first feast representing the death of Christ. And that is immediately followed by the days of unleavened bread. And that pictures a life separated from sin. You can really think of that two different ways. The fact that Christ was sinless and the fact that we, as his followers, strive to live lives separated from, lives separated from sin because we want to be like our master. In, in the midst of the days of unleavened bread, there was the Feast of First Fruits, it's called, Bikarim. And that is a picture of the resurrection of Christ. During the, you know, after the Passover, during the, the beginning of the days of unleavened bread there. Um, there are a couple, couple well, let's, the next feast is the Feast of Weeks, Shavuot. In the New Testament, it's called Pentecost. And you know what that celebrates. It celebrates the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church. There is a, a strong tradition that in the Old Testament, the law was given on Shavuot, on, on the day of Pentecost. So we have the law given on the day of Pentecost, and then we have, uh, on the day of Pentecost, we also have the Holy Spirit, which does enable us to obey God. People were unable to obey God with when they just had the law. Now with the coming of Christ and the giving of the Holy Spirit, we are able to obey Another another thing that I find so fascinating about this Pentecost Shavuot thing is after the law was given on Mount Sinai, Moses came down from the mountain, and of course the people were worshiping the golden calf. And as a result of that idolatry, three thousand people of Israel died. When we come to the book of Acts in the New Testament, on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was given. And many people were baptized. You know how many? 3,000. So under the law, 3,000 died with the Holy, coming of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 were given life. So those, those first spring holy days we see that they pictured things that happened during Christ's first coming. And to the day, I mean, he, he died on Passover. He, he was resurrected at first roots. And the Holy Spirit was given at Pentecost. So we don't know this for certain, but the fall feast, the feast that come in the fall, there's a good likelihood that Events, some events connected with the return of Christ will happen on those days. Um, the first one that we see is the Feast of Trumpets. That's, uh, nowadays it, it's called Rosh Hashanah. It's, it's the beginning of the civil year. It's the seventh year, the seventh month of, of the sacred calendar. And it's often thought that that this Feast of Trumpets pictures the return of Christ. And of course, how people interpret that, how they understand that, is going to vary depending on 
whether or not they believe in, in the rapture or pre-tribulation rapture or pre-wrath rapture or no rapture or whatever. Well, it will depend on whether they see that as picturing the rapture or the second coming of Christ. The Day of Atonement pictures the reconciliation of God's people to him. The Day of Atonement, the day, the day when God's people are joined with him as one. Um, the Day of Atonement is very different from all of the other feast days because the Day of Atonement really isn't a feast, it's, it's a fast. God's people were told to afflict their souls on the Day of Atonement. And we see elsewhere in Scripture that to afflict your soul means to, to fast. But what is so interesting is that when we read those last chapters of Ezekiel, chapters 40 through 48, it talks about how all of these fast days will be changed in, in the Millennial Kingdom. The, feast, the fast of this month and the fast of this month. And it mentions the fast of the seventh month, which is atonement that, that occurs in the seventh month. And it tells us that that fast day will still be observed, but it will no longer, it will no longer be a fast day. So that's, that's interesting. And then, of course, the Feast of Tabernacles is believed to be a prophetic picture of the Millennial Kingdom. It talks about the time when, when, the, when the earth is restored and when, when Jerusalem rises above all of the other nations and a man is sitting under his own vine and his own fig tree, picturing this idyllic setting of the prophetic kingdom. Now, the last thing that I wanted to cover here is the subject of where to eat meat. So this is in the things that make you go, hmm, section. Where to eat meat. Well, Leviticus tells us that no domestic sacrificial animals are to be slaughtered outside the sanctuary. They are to be slaughtered at the sanctuary. I'll read you a couple of verses that say that. This is Leviticus chapter 17, verses 3 and 4. If any one of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among the people. So this, these verses seem to be telling us that the only place where you can kill it and eat an animal is to take it to the tabernacle. But Deuteronomy tells us, this is, this is Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 15. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns, as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. So on the one hand, we have the scripture telling us that you can only slaughter animals at the tabernacle. And we have this other verse telling us that you can do it anywhere, anywhere in Israel. Well, so where, where, do, where were the Israelites to eat meat? In the wilderness, God was teaching his people that his tabernacle was a special place, unique and set apart from every, every other place in the camp. It was the heart of that organism 
sacrifices could not be offered casually, indifferently, or at any place that the worshiper deemed appropriate or convenient. Only one house was God's house. The two passages can be harmonized if one understands the Leviticus 17 passage to be speaking of the sacrificing or slaughtering of animals explicitly as offerings to be brought to the God, while the Deuteronomy 12 passage speaks of the sacrificing slaughtering of animals for consumption in one's home. It made a big difference when Israel was wandering in the wilderness. All of the Israelites were concentrated at one place, near, near the tabernacle, of course, in the, in the camp. But once Israel came into the promised land, they were dispersed all over the, uh, all over the country. And if you had to travel to the tabernacle any time you wanted to eat meat, you've got a long trek ahead of you. Well, most, of, uh, most of the Israelites would be, become vegetarians most of the time. So it's helpful many times in, in the Bible to, to understand when a passage is for a specific condition during at a specific time rather than always forever. So that helps you to understand where the Israelites could eat meat. Let's conclude now with a word of prayer. Father, we are, we are so thankful that you have given to us the opportunity to know your mind and to know your heart. You are far above us, so we can never completely understand you. But you have inspired your scriptures to tell us about you and to tell us about your plans and to tell us about the great truth that you have provided for a way that we can approach a holy God and that we can be holy forever and dwell in your presence. We thank you for that in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.